Welcome to this Columbia University Comunitas Public Management Podcast. Today we'll be featuring a master class by Columbia Professor Paul Lagunis on corruption and public ethics. Dr. Lagunis holds a PhD from Yale University and is the co-author of the 2015 edited volume, Greed, Corruption, and the Modern State. His talk today looks at the economic impact of corruption and examines strategies to contain and prevent it. You cannot oversee the work of everyone. You just can't. So that generates what is known as a principal-agent problem. You being the principal and these people you're in charge of being the agents. Now, that principal-agent relationship generates two sorts of challenges. One is, or the main one, is that it generates discretion. And this discretionary, discretionary power that is, the power that these agents have to do what they want, is what sometimes produces corruption. However, it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition for corruption. So discretion is a necessary but not sufficient condition for corruption. There are other factors at work besides discretion that help determine whether someone engages in corruption. For instance, and I don't know if you've ever heard of the work of Dan Ariely, but he works on the, it's great, so that's some of the work that I would uh, love to recommend. Uh, he actually also has a TED Talk. And again, we can, I'll, I'll provide a list later and we can, uh, of, of recommendations. But Danny really focuses first on the psychology of corruption, psychology of fraud. So unconscious, consciously or unconsciously, people endeavor to protect their self-image. So one of the reasons people might not participate in corruption is they, they want to protect their self-image. They want to feel good about themselves. And so they don't want to feel guilty. But beyond psychology, the other factors that we'll discuss in greater length here, the likelihood that an official will participate in corruption also depends on his expectations or her expectations regarding the behavior of others. We'll touch on this when we discuss culture. Then we have the issue of job satisfaction, which may be driven largely by remuneration, payment, how salary. A competitive public sector wage may reduce the probability that bureaucrat bureaucrat will participate in corruption by eliminating her incentive to supplement in a, an inadequate salary with in irregular payments. Additionally, given the, the employment alternatives in, labor, in the labor market, a competitive public sector wage raises a bureaucrat's opportunity cost of losing her current job. So it's they weigh the costs and benefits, and we will also touch on that in greater length a little bit later. However, the thing about the risk of losing your job, a well-paying job, only matters if what? It only matters if there's the actual risk of being detected. So, and that's the focus, a lot of the focus on my research, corruption detection. And it will be, again, something that we'll touch on throughout this presentation. But first, before jumping in, let me again state the questions, or let me state the questions that I hope to provide clear answers that you will take away from, from today's session. First, what is corruption? We'll work on a definition. Not a definition that you necessarily be 100% convinced with, but one that is well-reasoned and one that you have that you can refer to if necessary. Two, what are the causes and consequences of corruption? Three, is corruption actually a bad thing? That's a fair question, and I want us to be open about discussing it. Is corruption actually a bad thing? China was growing for, for a while there, two digits GDP growth. 
And we knew that China had a lot of corruption. So how were these not incompatible? Again, is corruption really a bad thing? That's something we'll engage as well. How has New York City, the city that you're currently visiting, how has its experience with corruption been throughout the years? And what can we learn from how it has fought corruption and how other cities have fought corruption? Finally, what works in the fight against corruption? Because I want to stand on a hopeful note, and a note that's a hopeful note, but one that's based on, on empirical evidence. So the question is, what works in the fight against corruption? Because I want you to leave the session not just with a sense of whether corruption is evil or not, not just with a sense of whether uh, of uh, what corruption is, but I also want you to leave with a sense of what, what we can do about it, what we know works in fighting corruption. So I want you to leave on a hopeful note. So first, there are three types of errors in public administration. And that's the starting point before we jump into the definition of corruption. One is nonfeasance, which you might also have heard of as shirking. And it's, it involves the failure to perform a required duty. The, 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 the avoidance of duty. Two, you have malfeasance, which is a more common term, which has to do with committing some unlawful act. Bribery, misappropriation, and conflict of interest would fall within this category. Then third, you have misfeasance or negligence, which encompasses the improper performance of some act. Now, of these three, typically you would think of which one is more likely associated with corruption. The second one, malfeasance. Typically, you would find malfeasance is more associated with corruption. However, could you make a case that the other two are also associated with corruption, like nonfeasance, shirking? You don't have to answer out loud, but just contemplate that possibility. Could shirking also be a form of corruption? And this is where we, we ask, what is corruption? So the previous conceptual mapping is useful. It provides a broad lens with which to understand failure in public administration, but we need to continue our search. Thus I ask, does the term corruption only encompass wrongdoing committed by public sector officials? Or should it also speak to problems such as corporate fraud? I also wonder, do you label an action as corrupt solely on the basis of whether it's legal or not? Or do ethical considerations also come into play? In this country, the question of legality comes into play a lot with regards to lobbying. Lobbying is legal in this country, but some people find it to be corrupt. It's a discussion. If you take ethical values, by the way, a great movie to watch on that is uh, uh, Miss Stone, I think. I can also provide some, some movie recommendations. Great Hollywood movie. And it talks on, on the, the, the grayness, the fine line between the legality, illegality, corruption, and, and ethics of, of lobbying. But again, let's say you're not just concerned about legality. You're also concerned about ethics, higher rules, ethics. So if you take ethical values as the standard by which you interpret whether something is corrupt or not corrupt, the next question is, whose ethics are you applying? So it's a complicated issue, this of defying corruption. A police officer that pockets an unsanctioned payment instead of issuing a traffic ticket to the careless driver who ran a red light 
is a clear-cut case of corruption. Mordida in Mexico, Coima in, uh, in Peru, what do you call it in, in Brazil? Corpina. But what about the following examples? So let me ask you what you think the following examples, whether they are or are not a case of corruption. And I will actually ask you to, to speak up here. So imagine this, a bureaucrat, a government inspector naps during the time he's being paid to visit construction sites to ensure that new buildings follow safety norms. Can sleeping or being lazy ever count as corruption? What do you think? I, please, uh, blue. What's your name? Lilia. Lilia? Lilia. Livia? Uh, Livia's point is well taken. And remember, it was something we discussed, malfeasance, nonfeasance, misfeasance. It's a case of nonfeasance. And we, did, we already started debating whether it is or isn't a form of corruption. Let me ask you another one. An, an official regulator does not find a media outlet for fear of bad press. Does that count as corruption? So the media outlet did something wrong. Maybe they uh, showed something they shouldn't at an uh, early hour of the day. So the regulator should find them but doesn't because of fear of bad press. They might even be threatened. Is that corruption? So no, this is not corruption. Here's another one. And this one's actually based on, on uh, well, they're all kind of based on real, real cases. But the following is a, is a real one from, uh, from the US. An intelligence officer uses his surveillance powers to verify his wife's fidelity. <laughs> so, so Julieta says, yes, that is corruption. <laughs> so, so there's something interesting there. There's, you know, in one case it's somebody not doing, in both cases there were people not doing, in this case it's somebody doing. In all three cases they're benefiting somehow, or they're protecting their interests somehow. In two cases, the first two, they're not doing. In the last case, they are doing, or the person is doing. So maybe that's also where you, you find a distinction that makes you feel comf less comfortable and more comfortable with. <clears throat> so now, I differ. Uh, I actually do count the last three examples as cases of corruption. Maybe of different degrees, but I still count them as cases of corruption. I'm going to provide my argument for why. You may or may, may not agree, and that's fair. But I'm going to give you my reasons for arguing that they would be corruption. So. Let's go with etymology, the, the etymology of the word corruption. It comes from the Latin corrompere, which means to break into pieces. Okay. So in a democratic context, like Brazil's, like the United States's, like Mexico's, in a democratic context, we can say that the people's trust is broken anytime an official allows self-interest to interfere with her duties. So here's the definition that I, that I provide. Any act in which an official allows his personal interest to interfere with obligations of public office in a significant manner and in contravention of the common good. Now, maybe you're not comfortable with this definition, and I don't see why you have to be comfortable with this definition. So does anyone want to press back on this definition? I'd love to hear from other people who haven't spoken yet. Let me give you an example. Significant manner. 
Yeah, when do we know? What's the threshold? What establishes the threshold? Fair. Fair. Anything else? Another possibility is personal interests. Sometimes personal interests, or should, coincide with the public interest. So that in of itself is not a problem. So you don't yet have to buy this definition. It's a definition. And frankly, there are tons of definitions. Um, I, I once saw this, um, this slide that had something like, or, or, or no, actually it was an appendix of an article that had plus 10 definitions for, the same, for this term, corruption. So, and I've seen also conferences derailed and, and wasted just dis defining corruption. So here's a definition, you don't have to buy it. Now the next question we jump to, so I gave you a definition you can take away uh, from, from this session, but the next question is causes. What causes corruption? What do you think causes corruption? I already hinted at some, some factors, but I'd love to hear from you. What do you think causes corruption? Some greed? What's your name? Robson. Yeah. So self-interest? Character. Morality. Okay. Yeah. There's a, do you know the story of Gyges' ring? It's, it's, it's referenced in Plato, the Republic, where uh, this ring, which is flipped, it's similar to what you see in Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings. When the ring is flipped, the person becomes invisible and can then do what they want. So what would you do if you could do what you want? What would you do if you were invisible? And the idea is that in societies where there's no punishment, people can basically do what they want. Yeah. Yeah. So these are some reasons. There are quite a few studies out there that look at societies, countries around the world, and look at correlations between various factors from different religions, uh, percent of, of women in the workforce, uh, income levels, openness to trade, um, just a number of factors. And they see whether, whether they correlate with some measures of corruption or don't. Some of the things we learn, for example, is that women, uh, societies where women participate more in the labor force have lower levels of corruption. Democracies tend to have less corruption than autocracies. Higher income countries tend to have less corruption than, than, uh, than uh, low income countries. But countries that are open to trade tend to have less corruption than countries that are closed to trade. These correlations, however, as always, are suggestive. Correlation is not causation. So there may be some other factor that explains all these things at the same time and it's not observed. But it's, in, it's, it's, it's instructive. It's helpful to have that in mind. So in terms of culture, they find, um, for example, with religion, they find that the Protestant ethic that, uh, that Weber discussed actually does seem to play out where there's less corruption, where Protestantism is more common than other religions. But again, it may be some other factor. Uh, in terms of education, there's a study that shows that it's 100 years out. Investments in education about 100 years out do lead to a reduced corruption. Again, as correlation, not necessarily as causation, but there is some evidence of that. And, uh, and there are also studies that show that informa information under certain conditions 
Uh, there's a great study in Uganda uh, where parents were informed about the resources that the central government was sending to their local schools. And by informing the parents of, what, of those resources, it helped, it helped ensure that the schools actually you know, didn't misappropriate those goods, like paint or resources to improve the school. So information does seem to, does seem to help. Uh, another example is uh, Esther Duflo and co-authors uh, have a study in India where they, they had uh, to reduce shirking among teachers. So teachers were not going to school to teach, and that was a huge problem for obvious reasons. Uh, they had teachers take selfies, basically, with uh, their students on, with un uh, tamper-proof cameras that showed the date and time. They had to take a picture at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day with the students there. And that showed that when you reduce shirking in education, you have a lot of benefits in the long term for students, you know, the, the students benefit from that. So there's some evidence also, and that is causal. It's a field experiment, so that is causal. So hopefully that gets to some, some, some of your uh, ideas of what causes corruption. Now, I want to, there's going to be some heavy lifting. If we're, we're exercising our minds, the heavy lifting is at this first half of the session. We're going to go through three models of, uh, of, 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 that help explain corruption. The first model is by Robert Clickard. This is a simple but powerful model. It's a model that has been around now for some time, and it, it just doesn't go away. And it's, it's powerful. It's simple, but it's, it's powerful because of its simplicity. So Bob Clickard says, you may expect corruption when you have the following. Where officials hold monopoly power, concentrated power, and are able to operate in secrecy with limited or no risk of being prosecuted for wrongdoing. I'll say it again. Corruption may be expected where officials hold concentrated power and are able to operate in secrecy with limited or no risk of being prosecuted for wrongdoing. So corruption equals monopoly power plus discretion minus accountability. Great one to memorize. Very powerful. So let me play it out for you. If I have never, oh, I just did that. <laughs> I have never heard of anyone being asked to pay a bribe at the U.S. Post Office. Let's think about that. I've never, Tom, have you ever heard of anyone? No, never. So why? Okay, okay. Now there's a solution to that one, but you just complicated. And that's good. <laughs> so why? If it, how much is a, a stamp in the states? Like thirty-nine. So thirty-nine cents. What would happen if I went to the post office and the person at the post office, that official, that government official, said, uh-uh, you have to pay me more, part of, part of which I will pocket and part of which you will get as a stamp? Why don't they ever do that? How does this, how does this formula help us understand why they never do that? They're never alone. They're never alone. There's always... So part of it is that they're always observed, so that limits their discretion. Yes. They don't have the monopoly. Yes, that too. I can go elsewhere, I can go online, I can go to the machine. I, they don't have, that's a key thing, they don't have the monopoly. And ultimately, if they did cheat and they were caught, they would be punished probably. So all this combined. It's a very simple but powerful formula and example. 
Now, as Tom was saying, some people do cheat by skipping the line. Uh, and just to address that concern, which is a legitimate one, uh, some have argued, like Susan Rose Ackerman has argued, that one of the solutions to that is to do institution, institutional reform where you actually provide express lanes. And those express lanes, you just, ask, you just make sure that they pay for that express service. And why is that preferred? It still generates some inequalities, sure. But the preference is that over them paying off the, the, the official to give you a stamp more quickly because then that the payment is, is absorbed by the institution, not by the individual. So improvements can go toward better lighting for the institution, some, some welcome mats when you enter the post office, et cetera. Now let's look at another more complica complicated formula or model. But it's very powerful. It's been around since 1968 and then uh, readdressed, I believe it was 1974. It's a model by Becker and Stigler, Gary Becker and George, uh, George Stigler. And what you imagine here first is you have three characters. You have a principal. Let's not get lost there yet. You have a first bullet point. You have a principal who may be the mayor. You have an agent who may be a police officer. And you have a client who's a citizen, the driver. Okay. So let W in the formula below, let W be the wage. Second bullet, if the police officer extorts a bribe, who here has experienced a, a police corruption? Okay, yeah, okay. So if the police officer extorts a bribe from the client, he receives an amount of B in addition to W. So if they extort corruption, they get the bribe plus their regular wage. So that's the benefits from a police officer's perspective of being corrupt. They get those two things, wage plus bribe. Third bullet point, no fourth bullet point. Let P be the probability of getting caught, committing an act of corruption. That's just the part of getting caught, not necessarily being punished. That's just the part of getting caught. The inverse, one minus P be the probability of not being caught, being lucky. Then you have W hat. That's that's the cost, that's the punishment. So that's if they are caught and fired, that's their, their wage elsewhere. Their alternative wage if they have to go for another, another uh, find another job, okay? So corruption may be expected where the wage is less than the expected value of partaking in corruption. The wage is less than the expected value of partaking in corruption. What works into the expected value of, of, of corruption? So it's a combination of things. It's the probability of getting lucky if you're corrupt. It's your wage and your bribe versus the probability of, not, of getting caught and of your punishment, i.e. the potentially a lower wage at, a, at another job. Now play it out, you're, you, you guys are leaders, again, you are now or will be later in charge of other people. So look at this formula here and imagine you could see everything that your agents are doing. So what happens? So just play it out, maybe even on, on your pen and paper. Play it out. What happens mathematically if 1 minus P, probability that P becomes 1. So the probability that you can oversee everything goes to 1. What happens? So this is a very rational 
explanation of corruption. But maybe the rationality has limits. And some people do argue that. So here's the third and final model that we're going to examine today. This is known as the Schelling diagram or the frequency-dependent equilibrium. Schelling diagram for Tom Schelling or frequency-dependent equilibrium. And what this diagram tells us, it helps us counter, so are Brazilians by nature more corrupt than Norwegians? By nature more corrupt? An immediate reaction saying no. <laughs> Should be a very quick reaction of no. No. No, of course not. So it's the same with Mexico. Mexicans are not by nature more corrupt than Norwegians. Why then is there more corruption in Mexico than in Norway? So Mexicans are participating in more corruption than Norwegians are. Why? If it's not in their nature per se. Well, this graph uh, helps us explain that. What's going on here? So first we have the y-axis. That's utility. So how much they gain, whether they're honest or not. It's just utility. Higher up on the axis, more utility. Lower on the axis, less utility. And we have the x-axis. That's percent of transaction, proportion of transactions that are known to be corrupt. So where you are on this axis tells you how much corruption there is going on in that society. Norway would be toward the left or toward the right? Toward the left. Mexico, my country, would be more toward the right. We can debate where it is exactly, maybe around here, but it's more toward the right. There are more trans more corrupt transactions. Okay, now we're going to talk. We can talk about firms, individuals, or officials. This model applies for any of them. So what's going on here? We have two curves. The M curve is the utility function of a corrupt or fraudulent corrupt official, fraudulent. Uh, firm or um, or corrupt individual, and the N curve is for that same for the honest firm, the honest uh, official, or the honest individual. So, let's play this out. What's going on here? If you're in Mexico, you're right around there. Does this? Maybe. Um, if you're in Mexico and you're around here, do you get more utility from being honest or corrupt? Why would that make sense? In what sense is that potentially true? So let's go to a case of, say, procurement. Two firms participating for the same bid. One is honest, one is corrupt. And it's, let's say, in my home country. Would it be more benefit? Would would the utility be higher if it's in a corrupt context to be honest or or, or corrupt? According to this graph, it's it's your utility is higher if you're corrupt. Why would that maybe be the case? Let me p play another example, and we'll come back to the procurement one to to solve it. Let's say you're you're in a city, so I'm not just picking on my country, which I love. Um, let's let's invent a city. Um, Whatever. <laughs> the invented city. I don't want to put a name to it. So we have an invented city where all the police officers are corrupt. 
and you're a parent that needs to take your kid to school. Actually, you have two parents. And you're stopped, you're both stopped by police officers for maybe you have a brake light that's not working or maybe you have an expired license plate or something. So you're stopped. You need to get this kid to school. So who will have a higher utility? The corrupt parent or the honest parent? Why? And get on and get this kid to school. Solved. Good. Okay. That's in a society where there's a lot of corruption. In the procurement setting, what you would have is one would get the bid, the other one would not, thanks to corruption. Now, over here, it's inverse. Why does that make sense? Why, does the, why in, a, in a very clean society, Mexico in a few years, let's hope, why then would, um, would you have the opposite? So that's that same situation, those same parents. What if in that very clean society where no, no police are corrupt, that parent tried to bribe the official? Get <laughs> <laughs> and the utility would certainly be lower, right? Yeah. Yeah. They would not maybe at least land in jail for a little while. The kid would be crying. Yeah, yeah. So, what do I? How do I expect others will behave in similar situation, given what I know about society at that point in time? So, if I know that I'm in living in a society where corruption is very infrequent, then I know that my corruption would stand out and that the probability of detection would be higher. And I would feel probably less good about myself because I'm differing from everyone else. My self-image would be also affected. It can have to do so with principles. It can it have. Because if you're in this point, if you're at a, at a point where you're indifferent to be corrupt or honest, that's where leadership and, and certain, certain incentives can push them toward this equilibria instead of that equilibria. When you're over here, it's very hard. So, because if you're on honest principle, and you're trying to get your agents to do what they should do, and you're very good at, me, at being on honest principle, you might even get a, a horrible pushback that destroys you, right? That can happen. And, that's, and that would happen if you're at an extreme case. If you're nearer to here, then leadership can play a huge role. Scandals, I argue, help move societies toward this point where they're willing to reconsider options. So perception does matter. Um, and just a point on that, people have said that that's why um, those who police officers, so the, those who have a position of leadership that set the rules of the tell us how the rules of the game are played, matter. Yeah, so this, this may not be a perfect re uh, representation of reality. It's a, it's a, it's a theory. But what's going on in that theory? Why does the honest firm in an extreme, corrupt, an extremely corrupt society have negative utility? It may be because of extortion. So you're forced, down here, you're forced to pay a bribe. You don't have an option. You cannot just say, well, I'm not participating in this bid because it goes against my, my utility. So why would it be a case where if in a society where there's a lot of corruption, why doesn't it for the corrupt, why doesn't it just keep going up? Why doesn't their utility just keep going up? Why does it actually start going down? Competition. 
It's an auction. It's an auction. Who, who gets what is those, the person who's able to pay and willing to pay the most. And so then it suddenly becomes that only fewer and fewer are able to get that advantage in that auction. So it becomes uh, somewhat anarchic. And only the most powerful win out. So let's play that out now. Let's play that out now. So imagine the situation where, you know, it's not uncommon uh, for people to maybe collect money together, pool money, communities, neighborhoods. Why? Maybe there's a community emergency. Maybe there's a community party they want to hold. Um, and so everyone puts in a little something into that pot for that community. So later on in that year, they have a big posada. Do you have posadas in Brazil? A big uh, 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 Christmas party. Or, or maybe, maybe there was a, fl a flood. Maybe there was a pipe that broke and, and things flooded and they needed to repair. So they had the common pot. Now, they don't necessarily use a bank. So somebody always holds the money in a blue box. Okay. And they rotate who has the box. And at each moment that somebody has that box, they can decide what? Or to keep that box safely and then rotate it to the next one. So there's always a decision of this sort. But the more they actually play by the rules, the larger that pot becomes, the greater the party, the more prepared they will be for that next event. Now, what helps, what helps us move from a situation where everyone will, you know, just play this out also with trash, throwing trash on the street or, or, yeah, throwing trash on the street. If I expect nobody to throw trash on the street, then it's less likely I will do so myself than, than if I did. So how do we move society over here? So you might need a coordinator. You might need something, something of, a, of, a, of a leader. So let's play that out. I need two more volunteers. Okay, so I will be the coordinator here. I will be the coordinator. And Lydia, that's yours. So that, they each have $10. Who does the money belong to now? To them. It's their money now. Now, I'm going to try to get them to cooperate rationally, rationally. So here's the deal. Two tickets, right? If you can manage to build in enough, a large enough pot, a shared pot, assuming that the interest that you would accrue from having more money, you know, because of uh, uh, just the interest would grow and the money would grow, let's, let's think of that's what this is doing. It's interest. So if you manage to put all your money down there, then I will trade you that money for each one gets a lottery ticket with potential wins of how much? Okay. <laughs> yeah, so you, you're in a tricky position. Bravo. <laughs> okay, I think that 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 makes the the case. I think um, so. They could have played that out. Yeah, they could have rationally said, you know, between the actual ten dollars versus the probability of of maybe not getting anything, 
Oh, by the way, you might as, might as well scratch now and tell us if you win or not. Uh, because if you win 25,000, I don't think uh, Washington will have, <laughs> will have his argument anymore. <laughs> so they could have played it out differently. And then we would have maybe tinkered with the rules together to see when, when it would be fully rational for them to, to play. Another way to maybe to modify this would, would have maybe add a $5 bill to one of the two bunches. So then when somebody puts down the $5 bill, the next person can say, I can now jump and take. So somebody was super trusting and put in more money than was expected. Then the other, the other person can abuse that trust or can continue to build on that trust. So point is, um, it, I think this helps us think about institutional design. It might also help us think about, well, whether it's institutional design, whether it's leadership, it helps us think about how do you get society to coordinate for its own good to move to a superior equilibrium. Thank you for joining us on this Columbia University Comunitas Public Management Podcast. Please join us for other podcasts here on this website.